Welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the cinematographers, costume designers, production designers, sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, authors, choreographers, composers, you name it. We talk to them all. Did I say producers? We don't ever want to forget the producers. They're the ones who get the money together. Uh, so welcome, welcome. Hard to believe we're already the second week of May uh, in 2020. Time is just zipping by. We, I had to rejigger the show for today. We were, as I had mentioned last week, we were going to have the director of Peace by Chocolate joining us, but unfortunately, um, his travel plans are precluding him from joining us today, but hopefully we're going to have him rescheduled for sometime in June uh, so that we can talk at length about Peace by Chocolate. It is a beautiful, beautiful film. So, uh, the big news this week, today, after this weekend, is of course, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Uh, over $180 million opening weekend. This is phenomenal. So yes, it shows everybody. Movies are back. Movies in theaters are back. Because that's the only place that you can see Doctor Strange uh, is in the theater. It is not on Disney+. Plus. It is nowhere else. And I got to tell you, it is one heck of a ride. But let's talk about Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness for just a minute here, folks. Number one, it is a visual wonder. It is eye-popping, kaleidoscopic in more ways than one. Color is fantastic. Because of the fact we have Elizabeth Olsen reprising her role as uh, Wanda, but she is in full Scarlet Witch mode in Doctor Strange, much as we saw at the end of WandaVision. And Red is very predominant within this film, but it pains me to say it, but there is a bit too much madness in this multiverse. Wildly entertaining, directed by Sam Raimi, so you know you're going to get some horror, and here there is just enough of a horror of horror-tinged elements to put Raimi's stamp on the film, including some great demonic presences that 
thanks to visual effects, look very much like the Dementors in Harry Potter. The visual effects of this film, however, are on total overkill. Way too much. I've got to give a caveat. If you suffer from motion sickness, like both of my brothers do, take Dramamine or something when you go to see this film. Because, you, and especially if you see it in IMAX 3D, because it will drive you crazy visually with the movement. A lot of circular movement, uh, spinning. It is one of the most visually effects heavy and intense films I've seen in a long time with chaos and madness, which fuels the story. But as I said, it's on overkill. This somehow, it doesn't quite feel like Doctor Strange at moments. Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange, I really plays second fiddle to a scene-stealing uh, Elizabeth Olsen. She delivers a powerhouse performance. She is at her most glorious in this film. It is one of the best performances of Elizabeth's career. Benedict Wong, who doesn't love Benedict Wong as Dr. Strange's cohort, shall we say, Wong, who has since become, after Thanos and the five-year gap, uh, he, he has become Sorcerer Supreme in place of Dr. Stephen Strange. But Benedict Wong is, he is a joy. He, we really, his character steps up. We really get to see more of who Wong is with determination and loyalty. And boy, has he got away with one-liners. Um, Benedict Wong does an amazing job, and it's nice to see him get a larger role in the multiverse. But the real breakout star of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is Sochil Gomez, who plays America Chavez. She has powers. She is able to transport between the different universes and apparently has done so. And uh, now in the Multiverse of Madness, she clashes and runs into Doctor Strange, and it's the two of them who go on this great adventure uh, as universes are melding, falling apart, collapsing on one another. And uh, it's a fun ride, but she is truly a breakout. You know, in addition to Cumberbatch, Olsen, Gomez, Benedict Wong, we also, Michael Stolberg, if you just got finished watching him within the past seven, eight months on Dope Sick, the miniseries, Get ready to see him here is Dr. Nick West. Another chameleonic performance from Stolberg. Uh, Rachel McAdams reprises her role as Dr. Christine Palmer, the love of Stephen Strange's life, who he had to give up when he became the Dr. Strange that we all know and love as a sorcerer. Chiwetel Ejiofor. Baron Mordo. Uh, a lot of very cool cameos, and for those of you that haven't seen the film, I'm not going to give those cameos away. Directed by Sam Raimi, it's written by Michael Waldron. And Michael Waldron, you may recall, we have spoken with Michael Waldron at length regarding the series Loki. So Michael Waldron already 
got involved with timelines within the MCU and how we have seen Loki mess with timelines. Well, now we've got timelines and now we've got multiverses. So I'm hoping that if we get a season two of Loki or a third Doctor Strange film, that we're actually going to see timelines and the multiverse converge at some point. But I like the story. The story is solid. Going between the universes is well executed from a story standpoint. But again, overkill with the VFX. And that turns it into a convoluted, head-scratching, oh my God, I have to try and keep up and pay attention with what's happening here while not feeling sick from the motion. So that's my take on it. Would I see the film again? Yes, I would. And it's for the strength of the performances and the story itself. But other than that, you know, I'm thrilled, thrilled that the film is doing so well at the box office. Uh, this is a boost that we needed, that the industry needed. And I'm happy to see it coming to fruition. And I hope that we see the box office for Doctor Strange kind of stabilize and not have a massive drop-off next weekend for weekend two. Because, you know, we're, going, we're coming up on Memorial Day weekend here shortly. Memorial Day is three weeks away, and uh, we need a strong box office for Memorial Day, and yes, we'll have Tom Cruise out there with Top Gun Maverick, but it's nice to have choices. And talking about choices, that brings me to today's show. As I said, we were originally going to have the filmmaker of Peace by Chocolate on the show today, but due to his travel plans, he's unable to join us today, but hopefully we're going to get him back here later in June. But there's another film out right now. Uh, it's still in limited release in theaters, but also it's available on digital and on demand called Hostile Territory. It's written and directed by Brian Presley, and it stars Presley, Craig Tate, Natalie Whittle, Cooper North, Lou Temple, Brad Leland, and one of my favorite character actors, Matt McCoy. You may also know Matt as from all his Hartford commercials that he does uh, and has done for years. This is set in post-Civil War. It is, it's a Western, and it's inspired by the true story of the orphan trains. Now, let me briefly set up the film for you first, and then I'll talk a little bit about the orphan trains. Hostile Territory, it is a Western, and it's an adventure. Uh, it's post-Civil War. Prisoner of War Jack Cal uh, Calgrove. Uh, he moves heaven and earth to be reunited with his children uh, after the Civil War. While he's been gone in battle, uh, his wife has died. His children are left alone. His oldest son, Philip, was also called into battle. So with the younger children alone, and pre now presumed to be orphans because no one heard anything about Jack, so everybody assumes he's dead as well. So the kids are taken and put on what was known for many years as the orphan train. And this is something that came into being in roughly 1854 and was finally disbanded and discontinued in 1929. 
And what the orphan train was is they would take children who were orphaned, predominantly kicking in post-Civil War. It was shortly after that where these three charitable institutions, primarily Children's Village, the Children's Aid Society, and New York Foundling Hospital. Uh, what they did is they took orphan children, children who were abandoned, abused, homeless, and they would put them on trains and ship them out to the Midwest to give them new lives. And it really was the beginning of the organized foster care in the United States. Now, for the purposes of Brian's story and this film, Hostile Territory, it focuses on the Children's Aid Society. And at its height, uh, Children's Aid Society in between 1855 and 1875 sent about 3,000 children by train each year with trains being sent to 45 states, including Canada and Mexico. And what we see here in hostile territory is with Jack presumed dead, Philip out in battle somewhere, still not having returned after the war, we see Jack's, you know, young children, Lizzie, Charlie, they're being put on an orphan train until Philip finds out and goes after them. And they're going, and they ultimately, they are released into his care. But as he is trying to take them north to some land and build a homestead, uh, which the army has given him uh, in order to keep him, he will still serve in the army, but he will be homesteading in a new area in Montana. As he takes the kids, his brothers and sister, he picks up a few other people, a few other children along the way for their own mini wagon train, which is then attacked by Cheyenne and not the friendly Cheyenne. You've heard through history in school, I hope, about dog soldiers who did not like the army. They did not like the white man. Uh, but for the most part, the Cheyenne were rather peaceable with uh, Americans, with the white settlers. But the children get captured, Philip gets captured, and a parallel storyline is running here where Jack Calgrove suddenly appears. He is not dead. He has been held captive, and he and his fellow prisoner, Desmond, have set off for initially for Jack to go home and be reunited with his children, only to find out his wife is gone, his children are gone, and then he sets out to find them and, and be with them once again and rebuild his family. It's an amazing journey that we see unfold here. Brian has put a lot of research into crafting this story. He brings in not only the history of the orphan train, but also the story of Company K. Company K was an elite group of Native American sharpshooters in the Civil War. And 
along this journey of Jack trying to reach his children, to find his children, we encounter Company K, soldiers who then join Jack and help him to go through hostile territory uh, in the pursuit of his children. And this, of course, is not, we are fraught with danger, action. This is shot on location. It is beautifully lensed. Uh, so kudos to Brian's uh, cinematographer, Mark David. And Mark does especially well with action sequences. We get bird's eye views. We get close-ups. We get mid-shots. He's very, very good with eye-level, man-on-man confrontations. The placement of actors, the blocking and the placement of actors out in the region takes advantage of the topography. And you'll hear Brian and I talk about this, that it's not often that you have staggered men uh, at different levels in an action sequence, in a quote-unquote battle sequence. Pretty much everything is kept on the same playing level playing field. But this is works really well. It takes advantage of the natural beauty and the ruggedness of the region. But it also adds another dimension to the action that is unfolding. Really well shot. Really well shot. The editing on this is not an easy kind of editing because there are parallel timelines running. Because we have the timeline of Jack, his friend Desmond, and a woman who joins them who's looking for her child, who she heard was on the orphan train. Alice, played wonderfully by Natalie Whittle. We have that timeline running, and then we have the, the parallel timeline of Philip taking his younger brother and sister and other children with him. And cutting between... The two timelines is very well done. We don't lose track of either adventure. And then there is the ultimate convergence. Once the Native Americans, once the Cheyenne show up, the dog soldiers, and kidnap Philip's small wagon train and the all the children, that's when we have a convergence of the parallel timelines. And it really, really intensifies and picks up. Uh, I have to say, the score, John Katsalinas's score, is gorgeous. It's sweeping, it's orchestral. By the second act, when we have the appearance of Cheyenne, we get traditional Native American motifs and instrumentation. It's really a beautiful score on its own. But I can't say enough about the location that Brian chose to shoot this film it is stunning. Shot in winter. There is nothing easy about this shoot. So this he's coming in, I think, is his second or third film as a writer-director. And he stars in the film as well as Jack Calgrove. And he does an amazing job in assuming the role. But again, shooting in Colorado, which stands in for heading north into Montana, in the winter... It's cold. You have kids. Lots of kids. Which 
there that puts another onus on you when you are shooting because the laws are so strict when it comes to shooting with kids. And then Jack had the added bonus of he cast his own children as well, Emma and Jackson, uh, to play Lizzie and Charlie. So then he's got to find the balance between being dad and director. So on so many levels, there were hurdles and challenges, but Brian has done an amazing job with directing the film, with this script, bringing true American history to light on screen. And a little sidebar, and you're going to hear me talk with Brian about this in the interview you're about to hear. You're going to hear me talk about inclusion films and Joey Travolta. Our regular listeners, you all know already, Joey is a friend of Behind the Lens. He has been on the show before talking about inclusion films, which is, it's just what it says. It's about inclusion and bringing those with disabilities, physical disabilities, emotional disabilities, bringing them into the mix, into the fold, teaching them the trade of filmmaking, television making, acting. And there's one a young boy named Cole Perez who steals your heart in a hostile territory. He is a young boy with Down syndrome. He does not speak. And I initially thought that perhaps Cole was part of Inclusion Films, but he is not. Where Inclusion Films comes into play here is Joey provided a lot of the crew for Brian are some of the members and the students at Inclusion Films. So it's so wonderful to see those young people getting a chance at making a mark for themselves and at independence and holding down a job and working in film production. So it was a joy talking with Brian. I can't wait to see what he gives us again in the future. He's got a couple projects in the works, including possibly a series stemming from the orphan train. Who knows? But without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive interview with Brian Presley talking about hostile territory. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm wonderful. How about you? I am just fine. I'm very excited to talk with you about hostile territory today. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your time. This is, it is a beautiful film, Brian. Oh. Right off the bat. Your cinematography, what Mark David does, is so beautiful. You've got drone shots, panoramic vistas. Um, I know you shot in Colorado, so it's like AKA the Oregon Trail and Montana. And immediately you're swept into the film. And it is so gorgeous to see. And you really take, you and Mark take advantage of the landscape. We definitely shot in the direction uh, or in an area where you can kind of just point and capture just beautiful imagery um, in that southern Colorado area. Well, and you also, you use it all to great advantage, actually, as part of the action. When we get into the third act with the Cheyenne, you're actually making use of the rockiness of that particular valley that you're shooting in. And what Mark does with the camera, we really get a vertical 
so often all you see is a flat horizontal right. in, in action sequences. But because of the staggered nature of that rocky cliff and where you have your actors positioned, it adds this great texture, three-dimensional yeah, texture that I really love. I really love that. Not used to seeing that in films. So, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. That was a nice touch. But, you know, this whole story, I love the premise of the orphan train. And so many people don't even know about the orphan trains. So I always love it when a piece of history, especially American history, gets opened up to more people. What led you? How did you find out about and learn about the orphan trains that spurred you to want to tell this story? You know, I, um, I was wanting to uh, make a Western and wanting to do something, you know, I, I kind of had some, the elements of what, you know, like the backdrop of the movie I wanted to make. And, you know, as I kind of dove into, you know, different periods of history. And, I mean, I love historical films. Um and, you know, wanted to have, you know, some true elements that were the backdrop of this movie. And I just thought, you know, the orphan train world, I mean, you could do, you know, a whole 24-episode TV series about yeah. the orphan trains. Um, and it, it's just a fascinating time in history that not many people know about that, you know, there was, you know, stories of kids who found good homes and stories of kids who weren't so fortunate. You know, the overall movement, I think, was a good, and good, good uh, will and good intentions to try to take these children and place them and have, let them have a chance at life. Um, placing them in, you know, homes in, you know, the Midwest and the South. And, mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, uh, I wanted that to have, you know, the backdrop and then you know, for me, it's, um, I like watching, you know, uh, you know, flawed human beings, you know, human beings conquering, you know, unimaginable circumstances. Um, you know, I think the, the human will to survive and, you know, fight is stronger than, you know, we give ourselves credit for. And, um, you know, and then, you know, when you're, can identify with there's no mountain or no enemy you would face to save your children and so um or to go find your children and so um all those kind of things it just the story started marinating and you know just sat down and started you know writing it and cranking it out and, um and uh was very you know excited about the movie coming out and pleased with the end result and we definitely um you know, we had our hands full in the shoot. We were outside for the majority of the movie. We shot in the middle of winter. Um, kids, horses, uh, you name it. It was, um, it definitely was a challenging shoot um, on a uh, independent level. So, You know, I love how you started with the orphan train. I, I'm glad that the title of the film was changed because not that much of the film really takes place on the orphan train. You quickly. I would agree. Yeah, I think it was a great idea for the title change to Hostile Territory because that really is what the entire second half of the film is. Right. Is Hostile right. Territories. And just that time period, 
Civil yeah. War. I mean, it was. I mean, it was. When they, yeah, the title just fits the film. Yeah. Um, and, I really believe so, and I, I think it better sells the film. And you know, not as much as I, you know, I, I mean, I have a, a TV series that I'm developing and I'm writing at the moment that's based on the orphan trains, and you know, I, you know, the orphan train really is the backdrop. Uh, right. The story, but um, I think the title change is definitely uh, more fitting. The orphan train is what kicks this this film off and I also so appreciate that number one you bring the Cheyenne back into focus I think the last time we've really seen the Cheyenne depicted anywhere on film or television was with Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman and there we saw the dog soldiers and the violent Cheyenne who didn't want peace and then the ones that did and you give us that here with Company K and a lot of people here again. It's another piece of American history that people don't know about the Native American sharpshooters. Right. Yeah. You know. I mean, when I when I um, you know discovered through my research the Native. I mean, I wanted to. You know, how I discovered the Native unit sharpshooters was. You know, I didn't want to. I wanted to be. You know, most Westerns have. You know, the cowboys are the good guys. The Indians are the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And, I wanted to do something that was different and wanted to, you know, show there's good and evil within all culture, uh, within, you know, all race. And, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the you know, I mean, look, what what our government did to the Native Americans, you know, back during the Tears in the early 1800s is, is pretty much, unforg- I mean, somewhat unforgivable, mm-hmm. if you want to be honest. And, you know, so... You know, even in that scene with the, the Cheyenne, I mean, it was the white man who shot first when they were surrounding the wagon. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I wanted, I didn't want your stereotypical kind of cliche Western themes of, you know, the cowboys being the good guys and, you know, the Native Americans being the bad guys. And, you know, so it's really important for me to find that, you know, as, you know, my character goes on this journey, I really wanted you know, uh, him to have um, a, you know, strong Native American character that was, you know, by his side, because there was plenty of Native American tribes that were mm-hmm. and, um, and so, you know, I incorporated the, the uh, company K and, um, into the story and just thought it was very fitting and, um, and, and, you know, when you research company I mean, there's racism through the Civil War and mm-hmm. Civil War. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Um, I mean, you could do a movie just on Company K. Uh, but, you know, I also thought, how cool is that? Native Union sharpshooting. Yeah. Group from Michigan. You know, that definitely has to go in the movie. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you put it in there. And what, But you also do, you do a nice job here with bookending the film. Initially on the orphan train, we have the matron on the train who's very well-kempt and, you know, everything is pressed and clean and proper. Every kid on the train is filthy and in rags, pretty much. But she's still kind and she gives them food when they ask for food and even though it's just bread. Then you bring us back full circle when the kids are being held by the right. by the Cheyenne and there is the one Indian woman who tries to tend to Philip and tries to comfort Lizzie. 
And so right. I love that book ending that you did. Because oh, thank you. it's a really nice touch. And I could tell it was done intentionally to bring this yeah. full circle with the whole mother image after the children have lost their mother. So it fits so well. But in between, what you do, and this is kudos to your editors, um, to Brian and Andrew, you're running parallel timelines here. You're running the, the timeline of your character, Jack, Jack and Desmond and Alice are one time, timeline. Then you've got Philip and Charlie and the other, and the, uh, the orphan kids. And, yes. and the orphan kids. So you've got those two timelines, and you cut back and forth so well between them with the pacing, with telling this story until the third act when both converge after the kids have been taken. And Jack and Desmond and Charlie and Shantu and the other Indians, I mean, and the other Cheyenne, they're going to get them back. I love that structure. And you have a great balance so that we see enough of both groups that we understand what the mindset and the emotionality on each side of the fence. And that's really very well executed, Brian. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I when in writing the story, you know, directing, acting, editing, I mean, I, you know, for me, it's, you know, I had... Uh, Years ago, I worked with Kurt Russell, and, you know, I was at that time uh, looking at getting behind the camera directing, and he, he said, uh, if you I had somebody tell me this, if you see the film, then you should be the one to tell the story. And uh, for me, it's, I've kind of kept that motto. Um, you know, there's been projects I've passed on, just good projects to, to direct, but, you know, I just didn't feel like it, I was the one to tell that story, and so... Uh, for me, it's, um, um, you know, I feel like I, I I knew the movie I wanted to tell and, you know, the, the vision was there and, and, you know, I had an amazing team and, uh, but, um, you know, wanted to do a story that I, I think is really kind of timely for the world we live in today and, um, and you know, it's taken a little bit of a journey to get it to this place. With COVID, and we had it, you know, set, and then COVID delayed everything, and so I'm really excited for all the people who worked on the film to be able to see the finished product and mm -hmm. the movie to be shared with, you know, worldwide audiences, and um, you know, hopefully, um, people walk away from the film with, you know, I mean, really, the movie's about equality. It's about we're better traveling this life together, and whether it's 18. 65, 1900, 1925, or 2022, I mean, there's, there's evil in this world, and it comes in all forms, <clears throat> and, you know, there's great-hearted people in this world, too, and, and all different culture, and, and I just think there's so many things dividing, um, you know, our country, our, our world, our, you know, different cultures, and I just think, you know, we need more films that bring us together versus tear us apart, and so, you know, that was the vision behind um, the movie, and, you know, I think everybody's important, and um, and sometimes, 
you know, in life, life has a way of throwing curveballs. And, you know, um, you know, my, I tell my kids, I mean, you're, you're going to be met with challenges all through your life. And, you know, how you react to that is how you grow. And, you know, sometimes, you know, like the end of the movie, you know, sometimes you find your calling through some of the greatest turmoil as you go through mm-hmm. life. But you have to go through those to get to that beautiful place um, that may be your calling in life. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, um, you know, those, are, those are some of the themes that I, you know, hope people take away from the film. Something that you've done, and you, and you mentioned it briefly, is it, this is a very eclectic cast and it's like you have African Americans represented through Alice and through Desmond. Alice, you make her an extremely strong female character. You have the Native Americans, you have your character of Jack. You know, you really mix it up and you show a real melting pot. But everybody has the same they have the same intent to get these kids, get them to safety and start a new life. And I like how you brought all of that together. And a lot of it you do just in the visuals, just in the camera blocking, just in the way things are set up, Um, which begs the question, how challenging was this for you directing and starring in the film? Yes, it definitely uh, had its challenges, Um, you know, bringing my own kids there to uh, play my kids in the movie. So being dad, producer, director, and an actor, uh, it definitely, uh, there was a few moments and shooting in the middle of winter where I was, you know, asking myself, am I crazy? Um, but, um, you know, it, it, uh, it all, it all worked out and, you know, put in a, you know, an amazing experience to be able to share with my children. And, um, and so it was, it definitely had its challenges though. Um, I will say that. Number one, you've got your kids there. Were they able to distinguish between dad and director? Or were you able to distinguish between dad and director while you were working with them? <laughs> yeah, you know, the, I knew when I was going to set out to make it, I needed you know, I, it would be hard to cast uh, kids and deal with kind of Hollywood parents, uh, mm-hmm. not to discredit Hollywood parents. Uh, but I knew I needed kids that were familiar with me. We were going to be in really tough conditions. Um, and so I not only brought my kids, but I, I've also coached my son's youth football team over the years. And um, and we, um, uh, so I brought, you know, the cast, some of those kids and their families who are good friends of mine to, to come play kind of all the children roles. And so, and none of them had experience. They all, they all did an amazing job. And, um, I knew, you know, just by coaching kids and coaching sports, you know, I, I, you know, kind of treated it kind of the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I knew if I could pull what was in them naturally and the more comfortable they are with me that, you know, I would be able to get, um, you know, good performances. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a risk and definitely um, was a little bit of a leap of faith. But, you know, I, I think it all worked out, and I think all the kids did an amazing job. Oh, I, I agree. 
how well did actor Brian Presley take direction from director Brian Presley? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you spend so much time with the material and I spend so much time with, um, I spend so much time, you know, prepping and writing and that, you know, by the time you kind of get to set, I, I knew, um, you know, I knew this character and so... Uh, but, you know, it's, it's always nice to be able to watch playback and, you know, I had uh, one scene with Lou Temple and, you know, Lou and I, um, we, there was a couple times that, and I, you know, veteran guys like that, I said, hey, I'd love for your, um, uh, you know, throw, throw me, you're not going to overstep, like, if you see something, and so, you know, there was times he would, he would say, hey, we'll try this, what about that, and so, it's nice to, you know, I don't approach approach it with an ego, and if, if somebody has a uh, an idea, and I have a few people always around me that if I'm in front of the camera, if I'm directing as well, that, you know, have eyes on things and can say, hey, uh, you know, you might want to take a look at that or try this or, you know, so, uh, but it definitely um, was a big one to bite off, to, you know, to wear many hats, but, you know, that's kind of my, I guess, my MO, I guess, when, you know, it comes to paving your path and, and then my journey in this, you know, career of 24 years in Hollywood. I mean, nobody's going to hand things to you. So um, it's a council of no's and, you know, I um, and people trying to tell you why you can't do something. So for me, I like to just, you know, prove, prove them wrong and set out and go do it. Got to ask you about the character of Jimmy, the young boy, the Down syndrome boy. I notice in the end credits you're crediting Joey Travolta inclusion films. Is Jimmy part of Joey's inclusion films group that he works no, with? No, he no, he's not. Um, you know, John uh, Joey Travolta, John Travolta's brother is a good friend of mine, and uh, but prior to bringing inclusion and. You know, I'll tell you that side of the story in a second. Um, I did an open casting call. Uh, we did an open casting call in Colorado. And uh, we had uh, Cole Perez and his dad come to the casting call. And it, this little boy just won me over. And I went home, flew back to L.A., and... I started thinking, I'm like, you know, I would love to um, uh, have this guy involved. And I wonder if I started thinking of ways to incorporate him into the story because, you know, kids who uh, had handicaps, kids who were, you know, disabilities, you know, were on the orphan trains, were not adopted. I mean, they were somewhat thrown out. And so I started thinking about it. So I called the... Uh, Cole's dad, and I said, you know, I've got these ideas, you know, I want to make sure, A, I want to be respectful of, of your family, but I would love to write a character for him in this movie, and and kind of explain to the dad of what the character, but I, I said, also, we're going to be in, you know, tough conditions, and I don't want to do something that's going to put too much on him, and, and he said, no, absolutely, Cole would absolutely beside itself and he the dad was very supportive so was Cole's mom and and so I set out to incorporate him 
he steals the uh, he steals your heart. He steals your heart. Yeah, he's um, and he his his demeanor, his you know, he can't speak, um, and that's that's in real life. He had a stroke, and but he literally greets you with a smile, open arms, and he's just such a sweet kid. And um, so he was. All the kids loved him, and. And so, you know, on, on my movies, you know, Joey Trollton and I have been friends for quite a while. And, um, you know, he has the school where he, in, in, you know, teaches mm -hmm. uh, kids with handicaps and disabilities. And so we brought uh, several of his students out to work on the movie. Oh, and, wow. Uh, and for me, it's, you know, it's, you know, we're out to make good movies, but, you know, why are we... Why are we doing what we're doing? And to me, it's about giving back and and paying it forward. And and so having um, Joey's students who were nothing but a blessing, and it also creates just a good energy on set. Mm -hmm. you know, where it may be under a stressful day, and but you know, I look up and you know, I'd see my my grip and electric department teaching one of Joey's students. You know, here's how you lay dolly track and. Um, so it it was a it was a great just great overall experience. Wow. Joey does a great job with what he does. Oh, absolutely. I've spoken with Joey at length several times about inclusion and about their first feature film. They did Carol of the Bells with the actors and the entire crew um, from his school. And it's an amazing, amazing thing that he does. I'm so thrilled to hear that you incorporated, brought a lot of his students into hostile territory. I think that's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful, Brian. Well, thank you. Yeah, it definitely was a blessing. I would be remiss not to ask you about John's beautiful score. It's this gorgeous blend that's sweeping and orchestral, but then we get to the second act when the Cheyenne show up, and then he brings in traditional Native American motifs and instrumentation. So I'm curious about what you were looking for musically uh, when you tapped John to do scoring for you. Yeah, you know, John, I mean, what, what, how I do all my films is I, you know, I have a kind of score in my head already, so I put together a pretty solid temp score. You know, John, I uh, came across John probably about seven, eight years ago, and, you know, I had him do my first score, and um, he... Uh, uh, for a great Alaskan race and just a sweetheart of a guy and amazing. And I would say, hey, John, here's kind of what I'm thinking. And, you know, two days later, he'd come back with, wow, here's, you know, his version of the same beats and tone. And, you know, we really kind of found a rhythm. And uh, we really developed a shorthand together. Um, and so, you know, it's made for a great partnership, you know, as we, as we, you know, move into that place. As far as I'm concerned, you know, I plan to use him on anything I do. Um, so, so basically, it's John. You got carte blanche. Give me something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't let him. I mean, he'll. I, I encourage him. There's no, you know, there's, there's no bad ideas. Um, I'll tell you if I don't like it. Uh, but you know, I try to, I try to make sure I give him a vision to work with. So. You know, I had a pretty, when I edited the movie, I put together a pretty solid temp score of 
what I want the tone and what I want the feel of the movie to be mm-hmm. so that he has a guideline to go off of. Um, and so, uh, but I always tell anybody on the team, like, you know, use your creativity, do what you do best. And if they, you have an idea and, and the creative juices are flowing, run with it and try, let's try it. And like, you know, I deal with, deal with actors. Hey, I want you to have the creative freedom. Your, your job is to bring that part to life. So, you know, let's take it to whatever level. I'll tell you if we need to scale it back or, you know, Hey, I think we should go this direction. Um, but you know, you want artists to feel like they're in a safe, creative space. Mm-hmm. So, uh, John, you know, really did an amazing job and it's just a, a great team being. I've got one last question before I let you go, Brian. Now that you, this is your second feature under your belt, it's coming out there into the world for everyone to see. What did you learn about yourself as a multi-hyphenate filmmaker, writer, director, producer, actor, that you can now take forward into future productions? Yeah, you know, for me, it's... Um... I, uh, you know, I wanted to start kind of my first two films that I made as a filmmaker, um, having them be, you know, really challenging, not just from a production standpoint, but from a storytelling standpoint. Um, and, you know, for me, it's, you know, you're, I'm just a big believer in, in any successful thing. You're as good as the team around you. And, and so, you know, finding ways to build morale and, and just also show the town, like, it doesn't get much harder than period pieces in the winter and snow with kids and dogs and wolves and horses. And, and so, um, you know, we're getting geared up to try to make a project uh, this summer. And, you know, I've told the, the team, and the team is jumping up and down to be able to go shoot something in the summertime and not the winter. Um, so, <laughs> um, but... Um, you know, I, um, you know, yeah, so it's definitely perseverance, you know, uh, learning to dig uh, within when there's a will, there's a way, you know, being a good leader and, and you know, I think people want to be led. And so really having a vision and, and, you know, having a healthy work environment and a work environment where, you know, whether you're PA or you're, you know, a DP, you know, there's no bad ideas. And, you know, we're all, you know, in this to make a movie making to collaborative art form. So, um, you know, each person is important. And so uh, that's really kind of, you know, what I, you know, took from these experiences and, and you know, it's always easy everybody to be doing. Nothing, anything worth accomplishing in life is, it's not going to come easy, you know. So um, it's take, it's taking time in my career to get to this place, and um, you know I'm thankful for all the obstacles along the way. And without those obstacles, I don't think I would have made these films. Mm-hmm. So um, I, um, you know, I'm not thankful. I'm thankful that we're a couple of days away from the movie coming out, and, and for audiences, uh, I know the movie's going to be released in Oklahoma, where I'm from, and. I know my mom has uh, hundreds of people uh, showing up in Oklahoma on Friday night. <laughs> I was going to say, I bet she's bought out a whole theater. Oh, she's got 
caravans. I mean, you name it. I've got my sister and her kids and aunts and uncles and grandparents. They'll all, they'll all be there. So. Wow. Oh, Brian. Thank you so much for talking with me about Hostile Territory. I can't wait to see what you do next. And boy, if you do a series based on Orphan Train, on the story of the Orphan Trains, I'm there for it, let me tell you. Well, thank you. We'll, we'll keep you posted. Um, we definitely have some good things in the pipeline and uh, more great stories to come. So. Well, I like your vision as a, as a storyteller, and I want to see more. So I can't wait. Thanks so much. Thanks for your time. Pleasure talking with you. Thanks, Brian. Bye-bye. And that was my exclusive interview with writer, director, actor Brian Presley talking about Hostile Territory. It really is a beautiful film, and it is a wonderful way to learn about some of America's history. And I, I have to applaud Brian again for his research into the subject matter. And now later this week, you will find on BehindTheLensOnline.net my exclusive interview with Matt McCoy, talking not only about hostile territory, but his incredible career and some of the highlights uh, and performances that we have seen from him. One of the nicest guys on the planet. I can't wait for you to hear my interview with Matt. Now, Something else I want to put on your radar. It has just started airing. It is a mini-series on HBO Max or limited series, as people now like to call it in this streaming day and age. On HBO Max is The Staircase. Wow, wow, wow. Again, this is based on a true story. Uh, a murder that occurred, oh, when was it? Back in 2001? In, in December 9th of 2001, where Michael Peterson was uh, accused and eventually convicted in 2003 of murdering his wife, uh, Kathleen Pe uh, Peterson. The conviction was eventually overturned in 2017. Uh, he then pled guilty to a manslaughter charge, but got to walk away free because of time served. It's a fascinating story. I remember when it came out. Uh, and it held my attention, uh, and I followed it through the news, through everything that was transpiring. And now, co-showrunner, producer, uh, executive producer Maggie Cohn has put together, uh, along with some of her partners in crime, this incredible, incredible series uh, that tells the story of The Staircase. And it is called The Staircase because if you weren't following the news when all of this occurred 20 years ago, uh, Kathleen Peterson was found dead at the bottom of a staircase, which is very key uh, in the dynamics of how the story unfolds. The cast is amazing. You got Colin Firth stepping in as Michael Peterson. This is a Colin Firth we haven't seen before. And I'm talking Emmy consideration for Colin for this one. Tony Collette as Kathleen Peterson. Michael Stolbarg as attorney David Rudolph. You've got Dane DeHaan, Rosemary DeWitt, Parker Posey, who will blow your mind as the assistant district attorney, and an amazingly strong performance from Patrick Schwarzenegger. He really is 
he's wonderful to watch. He gives his character of Todd Peterson some real depth. Typical sibling trying to be overbearing while confused himself, while hurt himself. Just a really great performance from Patrick. But Colin Firth, you will be riveted watching him, watching the control of emotion and how that counters. I was lucky enough to see the first five episodes, uh, which is what they let the press screen. I can't wait for the final three, but my interview with Maggie Cohn will be out this week on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But the series has now started. It is on HBO Max. Watch it. You will be enthralled as you watch this unfold. So, get to the theater. See Doctor Strange. On demand, digitally. See Hostile Territory. HBO Max. Take a look at The Staircase. And I'll be back next week in studio. Uh, I decided with the change of the programming change today that I would take advantage of it and do a pre-recorded show early this morning. And I do mean early at 5 a.m. for today's show. But I will be back in studio next week. And we will have filmmaker Zach Carver with us. And then you, a date you don't want to miss. Mark your calendars for Monday, May 23rd for Behind the Lens at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, because we're going to have Dan Mirovich back with us. And Dan is going to talk about his brand new film, 18 and a half. And anybody that knows their political history, what's 18 and a half? Could be some missing minutes tied into Richard Nixon and Watergate. It's a good one, and I can't wait to talk to Dan about it. So... That's all the time we have today. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.